Welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show, where we explore the fascinating world of real estate investing with your host, Patrick Switek. Patrick is a dynamic young entrepreneur and an accomplished real estate investor who's passionate about helping others achieve financial freedom. Each week, we sit down with some of the most inspiring individuals in the real estate industry and delve into their personal journeys, lessons learned, and secrets to their success. Let's dive into this week's episode. Hey, John Bianchi, welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show, man. You are honestly one of the key people I really was excited about bringing on because when it comes to anything Airbnb data, you're the freaking man. And I honestly don't even know much about your story and your background other than the fact that me and you chit-chat data all the time. And we talk about what works with the algorithm, what doesn't. We talk about what numbers work for properties in terms of which areas are good and how those properties are going to be performing on Airbnb. And I think you've gotten a pretty good idea by being the head of data for TechVestor and also pursuing a lot of data research on your own time as well. So I'm excited Amen. to share all that and share your story too, honestly. So I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to it, man. This is you and I have gone to know each other since you had me come speak at your event. Always appreciate you for doing that. And yeah. it's been nice getting to know you again, to have conversations with you. I'm ready just to shoot the shit and you can get to know me a little more and maybe I'll get to know you a little more too. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've just been either, either all fun or transaction, not transactional, but more so like we talk business, but I've never heard about your story, man. Let's start with that, man. How did you even get into Airbnb data? What was that upbringing? What's your background as well? So getting into the data side of things was actually from starting my own Airbnb business, but raising money to be able to build up the business. So I did an arbitrage business, which turned into a management company, which turned into a cleaning company, right? But it all started with that arbitrage and each one of the properties I put up cost about 20K. I didn't have the money, so I, I raised it from some other people. And that was my first time raising money and that was intense. Let's put it that way, right? Like it's, you don't wanna lose people's money. And so my way of ensuring that I wasn't gonna lose the money was to really understand the data like in depth. And after, with that business, I built it up to about, there's eight arbitrage contracts, another seven management contracts. I did the cleaning for all of those ones. Nothing crazy huge by any means, but COVID came by, wiped that business out. And then once that business was gone, I, I sold off the contracts, right? So I sold off the business, I sold, got rid of it. But once that business was gone, the one thing that I realized that I did the best out of everything compared to operations, hospitality, onboarding, like all that stuff. The thing that I did the best was without a doubt, the understanding the data. And so then I would, I was obsessed with it to the point where I would talk to all these people that were still in the Airbnb game about data and help them understand like what I was doing. And I was doing this just for fun, honestly, like on my spare time, I would teach people like what I was doing when it came to data and just having conversations. And then eventually people started to refer me, refer the people to me. And I was like, should I turn this into a business? You know what I mean? Like, should I do more with this? And, and it very organically grew into the point of like where I'm at now. And I'm really glad it did. Cause I love this. Like I really, I feel lucky that I get to be the head of data for TechVestor and I get to do this with everybody else because I just get to live and breathe Airbnb data. So that's like the super quick story of how I got to where I'm at when it comes to data, but it all just started with this obsession of ensuring I wasn't going to lose anybody's money. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a proper thing. And the cool thing about you is you didn't go into analysis paralysis. 
you made data informed decisions, but you still execute. And I think that's a huge thing uh, well, that a lot of people have a hard time balancing, honestly, in this space. And I, uh, well, yeah. just gonna, I'm going to jump in on yeah. that real quick, because yeah. the reality is that the reason people have paralysis analysis is because they uh, don't have a process to get to the answer. So mm -hmm. all they're doing is they're just looking at the data, but they don't know what steps to take to get to the point of being like, that's the property I should buy. So that's pro that I think that's the issue that people are having is they just don't have the process to be able to get to the answer. And so that was one thing that I worked through at the very beginning. I still had some issues and it wasn't until I did it over and over and over again that it became clear that I was doing the same process over and over. And I was like, oh, I could probably teach people this or show people yeah. how I'm doing this. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I get it. And, and so you don't believe that you're contributing to the data analysis community with all the overbearing <laughs> amounts of data you share. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the solution. I may not look like it at first. You may be like, holy crap, this is way too much data. But if you uh, mm -hmm. follow the process, it actually leads to the answers that people want. So I actually see myself yeah. as the solution for the analysis paralysis issue that people have. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Cool, man. How many short term rentals did you have before? I guess right now, how many do you have yeah. and how fast so, have you gotten those? Yeah. Once I had sold the business that I had out of Chicago, which was about 15 Airbnbs, I focused 100% on the data. But then I started working with TechFester, which took up the vast majority of my time. And it was, I did it purposely to hone into my skills of data analysis. So I personally don't have any Airbnbs at this moment that will without mm -hmm. a doubt change over the next year, two years, three years, I'll have uh, quite a few. But at this moment, what I was just doing was honing in on my skills and getting better and better at being able to buy properties rather than renting them. And so while working with TechFester, within a 18, 18 month period, we, I helped them buy over between 100 and 110 homes. And Damn. yeah, with a distribution of over $60 million. So and then deploy 60 million. So I don't personally have that money, but I helped with, within the TechFester team to be able to buy those properties. And I'm, it's me and one other guy on the acquisitions team who, you know, find all the properties. And then we have other people who kind of review them before we officially make the decision, but uh, it's our job to present them with the good options. And just so everyone understands, like we're, we have data out on 72 of those properties. 72 of them are, we have about a hundred that are live, but we have data that's been released on 72. And we're 72 for 72. So every single one of those properties Ooh. is a positive cash flowing, making money property. So it's always weird to say, I don't have any properties myself. And people are like, really? Like, why are you telling people this? And I'm like, but then I go, but I've helped with 110 to 120 and we've hit the, we're batting a thousand right now. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. ever find yourself over, do, do you, first of all, are you a conservative underwriter or oh, yeah. are you a more kind of lenient? I'm like an annoying conservative underwriter. It's like the, so the guy that I work with closest to, he's Taylor Jones. He's Mr. Jones on like most social media and he's yeah. uh, the head of acquisitions, right? He's a, a visionary kind of dreamer. Not, I don't want to say dreamer because dreamers like bad, but he can visually see what this could be. And I can too, but I always play devil's advocate to everything that he suggests. So I'm like, he's looking at this property. He's got this and this. I'm like, yeah, but, and I like list off 10 other things. I'm like, that we need to consider. So I'm always trying to poke holes into everything. And by poking all of those holes, we're able to see, we're able to avoid making those mistakes, right? So that when we do find one, like we just came across one, I looked at it. I'm like, this is an absolute home run. Like it's one of those ones where it's so easy to pull the trigger on it that you're able to move forward with it. But those are one-off properties. The majority of the properties, you really have to dissect everything. I'm conservative. Even my estimates, I do a, a best case, worst case, and something I refer to as like hundred percent, like my, I'm hundred percent confident this property is going to make X, right? 
that 100% number is accurate within 25% conservatively. So that, what that means is that if I Dang. thought the property was going to make $100,000, we actually end up hitting $125,000, which mm. is exactly the type of projection that I want to be making because I know the TechFester team has the ability to hit our best case scenario, but I'm always going to say, hey, if we don't do everything properly, we're probably going to end up right here. Or if the economy drops a little bit, we're going to end up like right here. And so that's mm -hmm. where I'm putting my number. And if we're happy with that number, we'll buy the property, right? And then we just, TechFester's awesome and we outperform. So like my best case scenario number is actually the most accurate number that I have. Nice. Um, yeah. That's great, man. So let's talk about the process, right? From, okay, we have the limitation of, oh, just in the United States, I want to buy, buy a property. Okay. Mm -hmm. How do I determine what market? What's the first step is to determine what market and how do I determine that? <clears throat> okay. I use something called the 20% rule. <clears throat> I think a lot more people are understanding how to use this nowadays. I actually have heard people talk about it in conversations. It's the price to rent ratio, right? If I'm buying a home for $500,000, I want it to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, mm -hmm. To me, that's a good cash flowing property with a good cash on cash in today's environment. Okay. If we were in a different interest rate environment, you could lower that. It doesn't necessarily need to be a 20% price rent ratio. And even people have a lot of different reasons for why they're going to buy a property. Some people are just doing it for taxes. They don't necessarily need to hit that 20%. I'm just letting people know that, but that's my metric of what I'm looking for. Okay. Then, and so the way that you would figure out if a market is good is essentially try to see if you can at a high level figure out what the annual revenue would be for, let's say a four bedroom, right? And you're looking you're like, okay, a four bedroom in this general area of that town or that city is making about a hundred thousand mm dollars, -hmm. right? And you can see what that property looks like as well. And then what you do is you go on to Zillow and you try and see if there's a four bedroom within that area that looks like the Airbnb that you were just looking at that's for sale for $500,000 or less, right? Or within that little range, maybe it's 550 to 450 in that little uh, range there. And if you can see that at a high level, this isn't like deep dive in the market, then you know that market likely has potential to actually be a good positive cash flowing market. That's one, one metric that you can use to be able to give you the confidence that market is worth deep diving. Okay. So like spending yeah. hours and maybe weeks studying the market to truly understand every single last thing about it. Cause you don't want to spend a week on a market. And then you realize there was nothing there in the first place when you can just very high level figure out if it's possible to look into or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. And so with that, how, wh where do you look first to begin with? Do you specifically target vacation rental markets, drive to destinations, yeah. fly to what, what's really your specialty with TechFester? Okay. Well, so I can't really get into the details of TechFester. I can, I, yourself, guess, I guess I can, yeah. I can like, the thing is that what I do with TechFester isn't necessarily what people do on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. So with TechFester, we are trying to scale a lot and because we're scaling a lot, we have to uh, be in specific markets that allow for that. Right. So supply is one of those markets, one of the key metrics for when we're looking into a market. The way that I advise other people, because I've, I've had this conversation with 400 plus people, is to find a market that you care about to start off. Right. So, like, where do you care about going? Do you like mountains or do you like the beaches? Don't go, don't study beach markets if you love the mountains, because I've looked into all of the different possible markets, and a mountain market roughly make, can also make the exact same as a beach market. And most markets that are profitable 
are profitable around the same amount. There's not like one Goldilocks market out there that's absolutely dominating it. And so pick a market that you generally, and then from there, from there, start to identify those areas, right? So let's say you're like, okay, I want to go to the mountains, but I don't want to go to the beach. You just eliminated so many potential markets that you would have, would have had actually looked into. And so you, what you're doing is you're creating a short list of potential markets to look into. Now it's okay, I'm only going to look at the mountain markets. And then you, what you can do is you could start to think of what are the most well-known mountain markets you could look into. And you add those to your list of places that you would then look into the 20% rule to see if it meets that 20% rule. Also, sorry, yeah, meeting the 20% rule. And then if it does, you add it to your list of places that you could potentially deep dive, right? And then what you would do is you just, you could even, you could look on, look up articles, best vacation mountain markets. And then you're, what you're doing is you're obviously going to get all of your main ones on that list, but you're looking for the one-off ones, the one-off lists. You know what I mean? The, the markets that don't show up all the time that aren't in the mainstream markets that might have a cheaper real estate that would be. Uh, a, a place that still has a lot of rental demand that would meet the 20% rule nicely. Those are the spots that I would look for more of the off the beaten path ones because they're not overpriced. So you pick a market type that you like, you, you look into all the main ones, you search on Google for like other potential spots, and then you use that 20% rule to see if that market makes sense. And one little thing that I missed that, that I want to make sure people understand is don't look into the 20% rule before regulations. So always start with regulations, then look into the 20% rule. That'll save you. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about regulations then, because you can look at the 20% rule and you find out that the regulations don't allow for it. So talk about how do you research regulations? I'm not, for me, I just Google it, but I'm not sure how you do it. So I'm not, people always seem to. Just because I understand data, people think I understand regulations for some reason. I don't know. But I like legalese is it's my kryptonite. I don't understand it all that well. Right. Like I literally just signed papers to buy a house with my girlfriend and she handled like most of it (laughs) because and she handled like most of working with a lawyer and everything because it just doesn't compute in my brain. So anyways, (laughs) I don't I tell people I don't give advice when it comes to that. All I do is just Google it as well. And I do my best to read it and understand it. And I always ask for somebody else's opinion that actually understands it a lot better. So like anybody who I can reach out to be like, do you understand this a little bit better? Can you explain it to me? And they, that is how I get it done. Yeah, no, I get it. And, and honestly, one way that's super easy, instead of just Googling like city name, STR laws or whatever, is to just find other people that are operating within those areas. So I like to look at property managers. So I'll, I'll hit yeah. up my friend that's in LA and ask her like, hey, how do people rent out in LA? What are they doing? What are they not? Right. And just having those relationships, I think is huge. And I think that's why getting plugged in is, yeah. is big too. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It makes it so much like mm. there's pros and cons to it because maybe they missed like some little thing or whatever it may be, but it's a good place to start and then continue from there. Yeah. Um, calling, paying a lawyer to talk to a lawyer for an hour, whatever that's going to cost, which mm-hmm. is not going to be an arm and a leg is a great way to get like the best possible advice. Calling up the person who is in charge of the STR regulations for that city mm-hmm. is without a doubt, the greatest possible way that you can do it. Right. They, and just being like, Hey, can you break this down for me? They probably get the call all the time. They're usually pretty annoyed with Airbnb people, but it's their job. So like, they're going <laughs> to, you get the information from them. So who cares? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. So cool. So let's say we, we have a good market. We chose it. And now we want to be able to decipher if this market actually can, what properties would perform in that market, right? So 
how do you determine that a property specifically will perform in this market? And I believe this is your also your specialty. This is yeah. where you really focus a lot of your time on. So let's talk about that. And then we can even talk deeper in amenities and ROIs and all that. Right. Kind of stuff. So loaded question, right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> and I want to give a good answer without rambling on for the next 20 minutes about how to do it. So make it simple. The, what you're doing is say you figured out that the four bedrooms within a certain area make have a good potential to cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. Then what I recommend is that you study all of those. So before going to look at properties that are for sale or for rent, study all the properties that are Airbnb listings and try to understand why the ones that are making more than the other ones, what are they doing? What do they have that the other ones don't have? Start there, right? In other words, like literally don't look at a property for sale or rent until you understand what uh, is driving the revenue and what makes a good property in that area. And then from there, you'll have a buy box. So you'll know, oh, I need to have a square pool or I need to have two living rooms. You'll notice these little things, right? And then from there, you can start looking at the properties that are for sale or for rent that meet those requirements. That That's like you're, just that little piece of advice I just explained right there could save you 80% of the time that you're looking to dive into properties. Guaranteed or increase your expected chance of getting the best possible property, like through the roof. Wow. Without getting yeah. into every last little detail, like I said, I'm trying to not ramble on for 20 minutes here. John, do you ever, cause I find this with a lot of my students and people in my community uh, for STR nation, they will talk to me about this property that they just bought and they think, oh my God, this is such a beautiful property and I love it so much. And they buy it in Joshua tree, which is, you know, my market yeah. and I know what works there. And it's like in a neighborhood and I tell them, I'm like, God, like you should be buying in remote area. That's what makes money. And they don't listen. They, they it's a personal preference of theirs. Yep. They want to be in the neighborhood. They don't want to be in the boonies on a dirt road. Yeah. Yep. And I tell them, I'm like, it's not going to make as much money. And then they come back to me telling me, Hey, like it's not making as much money. Yeah. And Dude. so what do you think about personal preferences when it comes to your investing strategy? Take the emotions out of it, man. That's like rule number, that should be rule number one, right? There's a part of it where you just got to take those emotions out and just do what works. Not like, the, don't fall in love with the property, right? Fall in love with the data for that property. Because what you just explained right there is actually the reason I have a business. So I'm trying to ensure that nobody buys an unprofitable property again. And right. what you just explained happens all the time. And even right now I can feel it in my gut. Like it's soul crushing <laughs> to me because... It hurts. It sucks, right? Yeah, it sucks because that person is they're they're emotionally attached to that property. They're happy mm -hmm. about it. They really want it. They think they have done all the right things to like move forward with that property. But you and I sitting here knowing that market really well, going, you're about to lose a lot of money. And you don't even like we're trying to help you. Like we're literally trying to make you not lose money. And sometimes it's hard for people to see that, right? So um, you know, don't fall don't fall in love with the property, fall in love with the data and try to understand like what are the revenue drivers of that market and then go into that area. I can't remember exactly what question you asked me because I'm just thinking about how shitty it is. For I those know. People. Yeah. Cause no, I was just yeah. saying personal preferences in investing, which is exactly what you're saying is don't, don't always, but here's another thing. There's also the lifestyle investor where they're willing to take less of a cut in exchange for getting preferences on their property. Like example, maybe it's not the most profitable to buy a property on the beach from a STR standpoint, but from a, family going to the beach standpoint they must be on the beach they can't be two or three rows back so, so i don't know those investors are not the people 
that we're talking to, in my opinion, mm -hmm. at least not the people I'm talking to. Yeah. The people who are buying a property just to save money on taxes and don't care about cash flow, the people that are buying it as a lifestyle asset that they can use, you're just not my audience, right? I'm, I'm trying to help the person who's trying to build a business and scale it and really gain a good amount of cash flow from that property so that they can maybe quit their job or scale up a good business or whatever it is that they want to do with that extra cash. Yeah. 100%. But yeah, that's, that's my main focus is always the cash flow and then the all the other aspects to it. Should we burn this property? Can we refinance this property? What can we do this property? Is it a good real estate purchase? If we were to not consider all that, those are some of the things that I'm still working to ensure that I understand as well as I understand the data so that I can help yeah. educate people further on that. But what I mainly understand right now is just strong cash flowing properties that are good buys, right? Yeah. How we talked, so we talk about this a lot also in general, how there's certain markets where you'll have and I'm curious what metrics you look at, because I always look at the common metrics, right? We look at ADRs, we look at occupancy, RAVPAR, ADR being average daily rate that yeah. you get, occupancy being like how occupied it is throughout the whole month or the year. And then RAVPAR is a very technical term for like in the hotel industry that we adapted that basically means revenue per additional or something like that. What is the acronym? I forgot what it was. Revenue yeah. per available room. Yes. Room. Good. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. And then, so that basically is just like multiplying average daily rate times the occupancy pretty much. Yeah. And then, and then obviously you have your gross revenue. So right. let, so that's great. But I know there's certain markets where I've analyzed deals like in the Gulf Shores market, I've analyzed mm -hmm. a deal where I thought this was going to be an amazing buy, but then I found out that the insurance killed the deal. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, it makes sense from the rule, like the 20% rule you were talking about, John, but then the insurance yeah. is like 12 grand a year. So how do you, I think, how do you gather that data to be able to make a more accurate analysis? That's, yeah. So that's just, that's actually the, the next step in the process, right? Everything that I talk about is usually let's try and figure out how much revenue this property is going to make, which I consider to be the most important number in the process. So it's, if you can accurately predict the annual revenue, everything else is easy to figure out. All right. So let's say you figure out that the property is gonna make a hundred thousand. The next, you're not just going to go buy the property, right? You're going to underwrite the property. So then you're going to say, okay, what are all my expenses? What's my mortgage? Blah, blah, blah. And then what it, when you do all of that, you're going to have your revenue. So your gross revenue, and then you're going to have all of your expenses and then how much money is left over. And that's how you're deciding if you want to move forward with that property. And I was like, how much money is left over now? Mm -hmm. Obviously there's also the renovation budgets and do how much money do I have to put into this property to get it up and running. And if it's some properties are just like, they need a crazy amount of money just to get them to be operational. And yeah. those ones would be like, okay, I'm not going to move forward with that property. But in most scenarios, in a scenario where the home doesn't need everything to be fixed, and it's a, a decent amount of money that you have to put up. You're essentially trying to figure out how much money is left over. And then that helps you understand what your cash on cash is and what your cash flow is going to be, right? What you just explained is you're like, Hey, I found a property that met the 20% rule. And then I went and tried to understand the expenses and underwrite that property. And I realized that the insurance killed the deal. Now, here's the thing. What you have essentially done there is you have gone deeper into that market to understand it better, to be able to figure out one, what the revenue drivers are, but also what is like the best thing to buy in that market. So, or what your price to rent ratio needs to be. So we have some markets where we actually need to be a 25 price to rent ratio 
We have other markets where we only need to be an 18% price to rent ratio. Can you explain that metric? It, the price to rent ratio? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, if I, it, we, we usually look for the 20% price to rent ratio, which I refer to as the 20% rule, right? So if a- and The gross you, revenue and, okay, what we were talking yeah. about earlier. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. I just, it. sorry, I changed it up that's a That's a long-term rental term too. So that's why I was uh, curious if you were going to yeah. long-term rent, but you're, you're gotcha. meaning short-term rent. Okay, cool. Short-term rent. Yeah. Just to explain it again, for anyone else who was maybe a little confused there, if the property makes $100,000 a year, I should buy it for 500,000 because the gross rent is 20% of the purchase price, right? But what you, what essentially what you figured out about Gulf Shores was that the, there was one expense that was not normal across the market, across the America, which was the insurance was much higher. And because of that, you, a 20% price rent ratio wasn't going to cash flow in the way that you wanted it to. And so what you would actually need to find is something that would be closer to a 23 to a 25% price to rent ratio, which just means that it doesn't kill the market. It just means that you have to then try and find something that has higher isn't, yeah, it's not a hundred thousand dollars to 500,000. It's maybe $125,000 to 500,000, right? Yeah. If you still want to go into that. And I always say hits a percentage that you are happy with, right? I never say hits a 10% cash on cash. I say hits a number that you are happy yeah. with because everyone's diff happy with a different number, right? Yeah. I said, I just say generally people are happy with that 20% price to rent ratio. Does that make so sense? Let's, let's talk about, because I know you mentioned something before about how it has to be accurate revenue. And that's the most mm -hmm. important, important metric. And I've seen personally a, a big discrepancy with what is shown on data websites like AirDNA, DataRabu from what is the actuals. And yeah. I think this is like one of the, the hardest things about being a data guy is getting accurate data. So can yeah. you maybe tell more about that? What pro process you use to navigate that with what we yeah. have? Great question. Bring it up. I talk about this on every single podcast that I ever do <laughs> and even <laughs> presentations. I did it, just did it at your present at your conference and I did it at mm -hmm. HostCon as well. So anytime anyone ever listens to me, you're always going to hear this, but it's the ensuring that you're looking at good data. So mm -hmm. Most of the data providers out there have, they provide all of the data. Okay. And so if a property's only been around for a month, they're going to show you that information right now to me, a property is only useful, which I refer to as good data. So useful data and good data use the exact same way is when a property has been around for almost a year, the Airbnb data providers have been tracking that data that entire time. And we also have a full-time host. And so mm -hmm. let's use AirDNA or even my data provider, which is going to be coming out soon, right? What it's doing is it's recording the Airbnb calendar of every single Airbnb every single day. And it's going in and it's seeing what night, what the nightly rates are and what they have available. So let's say every single day was available and every single day was $100. Mm -hmm. The next day, it's going to record all that. Then it's going to come back again the next day and it's going to see that one day was blocked off. And it's going right. to record that it got a hundred dollar booking plus whatever the cleaning fee is. And then it's going to continue to do this day in and day out for 365 days in a row. Right. And at the end of 365 days, we have a most likely accurate number of how much that property made over the entire year. The reason right. you can't take a property that's only been around for 30 days and times it by 12 is because of the seasonality factor of this right. market. And I generally need a property to be tracked for over 250 days to be able to feel confident with what the annual revenue number is going to be for that property, right? That's the first thing that I look for is how many days that it's been tracked, just so everyone understands what that means. 
So your benchmark is 250 of the 365 days in order to get an accurate estimate for you personally. Correct. Yeah. Cause then at 250, we're only missing about three months or so. Yeah. And if I just take the ADR and the occupancy and times it by 365 after it's been tracked for over 250 days, it's close to what the actual annual revenue will end up being. Okay. Right. Got it. And I've been doing it that way for a long time and it's been working great. I'm happy with that, even though it's not cool. perfect. And John, um, um, yeah. there's one thing that's already that I'm already thinking is like, what if somebody messaged the guest or the host and asked for a 20, 30% discount and got the discount so that you're not going to be able to capture that, right? No, you definitely no. Those little things are not going to be captured. So one thing to mention here is that there's never going to be 100% accurate data across any of the data providers for any of the properties. Unless you talk to the property managers. And they know so that's one, some of the best data that you can get is from actual live people and them sending you their data, which is very difficult to do. But so, so how about let's do you think that there, John, just as a fun question, do you mm -hmm. think that there's a way that if you enter a market, you can actually go to the property manager and ask them directly what data they have on what works and what doesn't? Do you think that's a viable in your I, strategy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. 100%. I, rec I actually talk about that in my presentations. I talk about how mm -hmm. you should do all the data work. So you should go through all the data, make sense of all the data, build buy boxes, study the properties. However, you should always talk to a local. Talk to a local Airbnb host, a local Airbnb realtor, property management company, something along those lines. Someone who's like in the weeds of Airbnb for that specific market. And I actually... I almost don't like saying this, but it is true. Like the best person to reach out to is somebody who's a property manager because like an Airbnb property management company, because they want your business. And so they're willing to give information, even if you're not going yeah. to sign up with them. And it may yeah. not be like other people, they're not going to give you other people's data. They're not going to be like, Hey, this guy over here is making this amount of money, but they'll say like on average, a four bedroom, in this area is going to make about that amount of money if you do X, Y, Z. Right. So that's yeah. like some of the. That can be, let me put it this way, that can be some of the best information. Now, it depends on what market you're in, right? Because I have seen some property managers make significantly less than mm. the properties that we have in certain areas, not even apples to apples. And the reason being is not really the property manager's fault. It's because the owner won't spend money on furniture and oh. photos and design and amenities and all those things that they need to be able to compete. And so the property manager is just working with what they have, right? And so it's, you're, you, it's like racing a shitty car against a really nice car. Like you're not going to win unless the person is willing to buy a, a nicer car to be able to race against a nicer car. But John, I feel in that case, the property manager would know that. I know which properties they need yeah. to do specific things to their property. And I tell them time and time again, I just got this one person to buy a freaking hot tub, which I've been telling them for literally a whole like year, it seems. So I know yeah. it's going to help them, but they just didn't listen. And, and it, there's a lot of different things that go on to that. But I, I wanted to also ask John, do you think that I know the answer to this, but I'm curious if the data supports it. A good man. Do you think there's discrepancy within managers? Oh, for sure. Like how but, you manage like, the property, right? Versus that's, not even, that's not even up for debate. That's a, that is yeah. a without a doubt question. And I'll explain why, at least from my opinion, like from what I've seen, your nightly rate and like what that nightly rate is at what period of time of the day in the year is crazy important, right? 
what at what point should your Thanksgiving be the highest possible nightly rate? And what should that number be? And how many days prior to Thanksgiving should it be set at that rate? And at what time should you start lowering that price? And then the days on the opposite side of Thanksgiving, so the Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. what are those prices? What should they be? And what is the exact same logic for that as well? Then you can apply that, that what I just explained, like very simply to the other 364 days throughout the year. Because every single one of those days should be a certain price at a certain time and and then start to lower over a certain period of time based off of X, like a, a ton of different factors. Okay, so just that alone, majority of people in general are not fanatics about. And if they were mm-hmm. just fanatics about their pricing and like everything they needed to understand about it, and we're really on top of it. It would make a world of difference. Then you add in somebody who's not a fanatic about it and they're managing 20 to 50 properties. That's a recipe for a shit show, right? Like of, of not so you could a- buy a good property, John, yeah. but then have a shitty manager it's- and it doesn't even fulfill its potential. So then, but then those properties are going to be your comps to see right. what works or what does in the market. So doesn't that skew the data? For sure. It, it will. To an extent, right? Okay, so if you're saying skew the data. So say like I was going to go buy a property myself and I was going to put it right. together myself and I was going to manage it myself. I'm generally not looking at other uh, property management properties. I'm looking at the other people who are just like me. I'm looking for the fanatics, right? Like the people who are obsessed with their property. That are like you know if they're a fanatic. That's my well, question. How many listings do they... You know by how good the listing looks. By how well mm-hmm. it's designed. How well the photos are taken. How well... How many reviews how good their reviews are. Do they have one or do they have 20? Because as soon as you get, it's so easy to be really good at one. It's extremely difficult to be really good at 20. And generally I find like some of the best data to be those people that have between one and five where the listings are just beautiful mm-hmm. and you got these amazing reviews. And then at the same time, the, re- the other reason I know why they're f- fanatics are really good is because their property is making more than the properties that are very similar to theirs, right? So once I see two properties that are super comparable, but one's making $10,000 more or $20,000 more, and there's really hard to be able to tell a difference. It's usually because they understand the pricing or the optimization or something along those lines with their property better than the other person uh, near them. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. So you look for those fanatics to be able to decipher your comps when you're running comps in a specific market. Yeah, honest. And I actually highlight them bright green, meaning like they're really good. And then you have everybody else. And like TechVestor is a group, we're all fanatics. Like every single person at TechVestor mm-hmm. is an absolute psycho in their little area. Like we're all autistic to what we do. I'm not sure if that's a good thing to say, but I, mean, <laughs> I just meant it in the sense of like yeah. hyper-focused and we're I really agree. you know locked into that thing. And we, because of that, we look for other people who are like that. And, and those people are the best possible data for us. Like the greatest data, because we're like, if they can do it like that, then we can do it better. And what's cool is you get these people, let's say you have one that's making 100,000, fanatic. You have another person who's making 70,000, also a fanatic. Now, the best part here is you try to understand why one's making $30,000 more, right? Because yeah. then it becomes down to the home, it comes down to the amenities. Because you can have a perfect listing that makes 70,000. You can have another perfect listing that makes 100,000. And there's little things that you would have done that, that you could tweak to allow you to get to 100,000. Right. So yeah. maybe they added a little bit more amenities or they have a they have a slightly larger home or a little bit more of a luxurious looking home. And those are the factors that are allowing them to make thirty K more. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And so with that, do you 
So when somebody comes and presents you a currently operating Airbnb that's not doing well in this market, because I know a lot of short-term rentals are getting squeezed out where they just can't make sense anymore to, to be a short-term rental. And so people are selling them or doing whatever they can. Yeah. Um, do you use their previous data to of what they were netting and what they were grossing to be able to underwrite the property? Or do you look at other factors as well? Uh, that would be, so I actually don't do that very often. So mm-hmm. it's, I can't really say, oh, I, this is how I do it. Usually, so if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying somebody sends me their property and they're like, hey, I'm underperforming. What can I do to increase my revenue? Yeah, John, no. they, okay. they come up to you and they say, I, I don't want this property anymore. It costs oh, $500,000. Gotcha. And I'm making 50K gross. Yeah. And, I, know, I know what you're getting at. And now. then it's okay. It's not a 10%. It's a, 10 percent price to rent ratio. ratio yeah but then you know that they have the potential of making it a 20 percent price to rent yeah. ratio yeah i know what you're saying i would ignore that okay. almost it depends on what the listing looked like right if it's a yeah. beautiful listing if it's done extraordinarily well if i look at it and go i don't think there's anything that we can do to this to really make it better mm-hmm. like maybe we can add a mural right but if, that, if that's if it's really good then i'm gonna look at it if it's average then i'm not gonna look at it and even if it like technically is really good there is a part of me that goes, we're going to, pr- we're going to optimize it and price it like better than what they're going to do. So we're, we are going to make a little bit more than them. We can add a little bit to it, but again, then maybe we're going from like hundred to 110. So it's the ones where it's not that good of a listing to begin with that I'm going to look at and be like, I don't really care. I don't care about that number. The actuals is not useful. If I do it my way, what is it actually going to do? That is a question. I, Avery Carl, we talk all the time and that's something that pops up all the time. I'm sure um, in the Smoky yeah. Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Every market she's always, she gets, she, so everyone's always, but what are the actuals? What are they actually doing? It's that that's what it they did matter. based on the way that it looks and what the menus that they have and the way they priced it and the way they managed it. Right. So if you, if you can understand what they were doing wrong, you can improve those things and it'll make you more money. It's just how yeah. it works, right? You're adding more value. If you have more value, you make more money. That's yeah. what business is. hundred percent. So let's talk about amenities okay. and what amenities work for what market and what I think the number one question I get as a property manager is 30, I have 30 listings at the time of this recording and probably another five ten coming in. So I get this question a lot, which yeah. is, <laughs> what, okay, great. My, my listing's doing well. I want to make it do better. I give them suggestions yeah. and then they yeah. tell me, oh, this amenity if I spend X amount of money, how much money am I going to get back? And when am I going to get that money back? Yeah, that's frustrating. That's a tough one <laughs> because it's not, so it's not, it's never going to be in like a clear apples to apples return. I know some people are trying to do it right now and it's honestly super frustrating to see because it's bullshit in my opinion. It's not accurate. So anyways, there's providers out there that are trying to show if you had a hot tub, this is what your return is going to be. There's so many other factors that play into that, that to even put out that number is ridiculous. Anyways, that's another battle i'll have to fight off for the next two three years but you're gonna get that a lot i'm gonna get it a lot yeah so the thing is that there's no clear way as of this moment to be able to know if a hot tub is going to increase your revenue by ten twelve thousand dollars thirteen thousand dollars there's no way to be able to see it and the reason being is because there's so many factors that drive the revenue for a listing and so the only option that you really have is to be able to try to add all the little touches that you possibly can to be able to increase that revenue. So as an example, I always, I always say that a photo shoot can increase your revenue from five to $20,000. That's a huge variance. But the reason I say that is because I see listings all the time where they have everything, 
and it matches up with everything else of another listing and they're very comparable, but one has bad photos, one has good photos. So therefore, those are two apples to apples properties. However, the one is just has bad photo shoot. So if it increases photo shoot, it'd do better. I have an amazing example of that on my Instagram right now. This one right. property perfectly increased it by $11,000. I saw um, that, yeah. yeah, but most properties don't have everything apples to apples other than a hot tub. If that were to be the case and one person had a hot tub, then it would be like, oh, a hot tub actually drives revenue by X amount. I've never come across a listing that was that identical to, to each other but was only missing one amenity. That's yeah. the only way to be able to get that information. The, right? the most accurate. And That's so, most accurate, yeah. And so why, why invest in a pickleball court? Why invest in a hot tub? Yeah. Why invest in a sauna? Yeah. So what's the thought process? Well, it's exactly what I, it was the value factor, right? Like I was just saying. So the one thing that people always miss about an Airbnb, maybe not always, but it, I feel like always, is that they're running a business. They're not running a place. It's not a long-term rental where somebody's going to stay for the year. That's completely different. You're running a business. And if you're running a business, you need to add value to increase your revenue for your business. That's how, if you look at any business that ever exists ever, they are providing value in exchange for money. And so whoever adds more value is able to increase their, their, their price for whatever it is that they are offering. And so if I have a Airbnb that has four bedrooms, a kitchen, a bathroom, a couple of bathrooms, and that's it. That's like my base because every single other person has that has a four bedroom, right? So yeah. they all have those things. So then if I'm going to add more value than my competitor, the things that I can add that would be, that would make my p property better and have more value are going to be things like pickleball court, a hot tub, a pool, X, Y, Z, right? You name it. Those yeah. are the things that's going to be an, an add on. And so then people are willing to pay more because you have now given them more. Simple, right? That's, that's simple, okay? Now, what you give them matters. So I'm not, we tend to not give people hot tubs in Florida. It's already mm. really hot. But we give people hot tubs in Arizona because even though Arizona could be stupid hot for mm. two, three months, it's actually cool for the rest of and the night. time. So it's a really nice atmosphere for about, let's say eight months out of the year to be able to sit in a hot tub, right? So that makes a lot of sense there. Now, a pickleball court, if I design a place to be a bachelorette themed home, so it's only, it's literally all pink. Actually, maybe <laughs> Rob's doing this right now, but Bridget. yeah, with Bridget. <laughs> so I'm going to contradict what Rob's doing, but if I were to create a place that was all pink, right. And it was specifically for women. Should I give them a pickleball court as well? Some people would be, some people would say that, yes, they want to play it as well. My instant thought is that I'm going to see a group of guys play pickleball more than I'm going to see a group of girls play pickleball. So if I had to, if I was putting together a bachelor or a bachelorette themed, and you told me pick one, that's going to get a pickleball court, I'm going to put it towards the bachelor, right? And that's just from personal experience of playing pickleball. Okay. So anyone who's out there, who's John's a sexist because of it, <laughs> I'm going down on this podcast, man. Oh, dude, I, I can't wait. All the hate comments. This yeah, is gonna right. awesome. We're going to clip this right here. And I can't wait. It's going to be good. I'm, I'm realizing as it's coming out, I'm like, Oh my God, I got to explain these things, but it's all good. What I'm trying to say is you pick a, you're, you're trying to understand your demographics, right? To put it to, to simplify it. I know I'm trying to give all these examples. Who's your demographic? Who's staying at your property? Is it families? If it is families, are you going for families that have kids that are between the age of one and four, or are they between the age of 10 and 14? Those are two different kid groups and age ranges that are going to want to be doing different things. 
So if you just understand your demographics, then you provide the amenities that, that they care about the most, that they're willing to pay more money for, then that is going to increase their experience and add more value to their trip. That is going to increase the amount of revenue that you're going to make. And it's going to be worth it in the long run. Now, 100%. I feel like that's understood at this point, right? Beating the dead horse here. What I really want to get across though is everyone, I, I feel everyone's going to get beat up in Airbnbs when we hit this next economic cycle. Okay. So it used to be in finance and every single eight to 10 years, the economy resets. We essentially, we go too far and the stock market and everything, everyone starts holding on to all of their money. And when they hold on to all their money, people stop buying things and that hurts all these businesses and it's a ripple effect. And then eventually it all kind of comes crashing down on one day. Usually there's a big event that causes that one day to crash everything down. I feel like most Airbnb operators are not ready for that day because it's going to come and it's going to hurt, but you've got to want to try and get past that time frame. So the winners and the losers are going to be people who can get through the next economic down cycle. Okay. The way that I think that you get through that next economic cycle is by having the place that people still want to rent even during those times. Because as we learned during COVID was that people still traveled during COVID. Even when you're supposed to be locked into your house, people are still moving around, right? Same thing the, with the recession. Exactly. And, but it's less people, right? Maybe everyone for COVID was heading out into the woods and whatnot, but for the other places like in the cities and, and everything, the, the places that still got booked were far and few between. So there was still like a handful of places, right? So my theory is if there's a thousand listings in a location and then there's only a hundred people that travel to that listing or to that market now because of this economic down cycle that we're in, I want to be one of those hundred homes that still gets booked. Yeah. And so in my theory of the way I do everything is how do I set up this property to be in that top 100 to be one of those properties that's still going to continue to get booked even in this economic, any economic downturn? Yeah. Do you think yeah. eventually more people will come and up the level of quality? And so let's say you get a pickleball court but the, and a hot tub and a, and a sauna, but then everyone has hot tubs, pickleballs and saunas. And now it's like the next thing and you're outdated already. So, so like you actually answered the question while asking the question because people are adding pickleball courts to keep up with everyone that's adding with everyone right before everyone, nobody had yeah. that. So now everyone's like, I got to add a pickleball court just to yep. be able to get my home booked. Yep. And so then once everyone has pickleball courts, what's the next thing? And then what's the next thing? It's never end, it never ends. No, it's just adding more. But, and everyone who <laughs> I guarantee is people who are hearing that. Cause even I think of myself where it's, you're like, you almost like sigh. You're like, Oh, I got never going to end. If you owned a, any other business, literally any other business, at all times, you are constantly just trying to be able to add more to be able to beat your competitor who is also at the exact same time trying to add more, right? So it's never stops. No, we're just trying to, you just try to keep making it better and better. So it is what it is, right? So John, how about, let's talk about, this is the last thing about this before we get into the last three questions for you. Do it, but yeah. what about market saturation? Do you think that as people level up the level of quality, do you think that actually benefits the market? Um, yeah, because then the quality of the market is so much higher. So more people are going to that market. Do you think that's a real thing for sure? Yeah. Yeah. If Vegas didn't have such crazy hotels, people wouldn't go there. Scottsdale has some absolutely amazing Airbnbs and I'm sure that drives traffic to Scottsdale. Like Scott, I, I guarantee Scottsdale becomes a people go to Scottsdale because there's such amazing Airbnbs that they can go yeah. to. There's other things they can do as well, but it's like, that is probably a polling factor or one of, right? 
So yeah, I think that, that's the question, right? Do really good Airbnbs pull in people to go to those markets? I, I believe so. I think it levels up the market. I know the, I was talking to Bill Faith and uh, he, I had him on this podcast twice already, but he talks about how in the first episode we, we filmed, he talks about how golf shores became what it is today. And they didn't have, for instance, nobody had golf carts in any of the properties. Now every property wants to do golf carts. So it's things like that. I forgot what the amenity was, but the level right. of amenities kept going up. And because of that, it became more of a hot spot for people to visit. I thought yeah, that was interesting. I could see that. I was just yeah. thinking about it. I was trying to think like what market would be the best example of this. And you're literally in it. So it's I know Joshua, Joshua, Joshua Tree is market. like the number one market for this. Like the Airbnbs have gotten so great there that people go because of the Airbnbs. Now people obviously have gone beforehand, but it's without a doubt. No, it was known it was known for doing drugs and going to the national park. It was not known for the Airbnbs. And right. now it's crazy. I'm seeing people coming just for the Airbnbs and the experience outdoors. And it's yeah. a lot of pressure. That's what it is. I've seen that. But that I also curious for, for myself because Palm Springs is right next door. And the quality of short-term rentals there are even higher. And the development, obviously, the commercial development, yeah. all that. And so I'm thinking in my head, I'm seeing so many people that are saying, I would never stay in Joshua Tree because it's like, disgusting. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, dang, I'm... Like we're just getting started here. I just mm. feel like this is going to get to the high quality of commercialization, but the right amount where right. there's enough people still coming in. Yeah, um, I would. I haven't know. been to either of those markets, but I've studied both of them pretty in depth, and I would yeah. say that Palm Springs and Joshua Tree are vastly different. They are. Idlewild. Idlewild. That's like almost saying that Idlewild and Palm Fig Springs are the same. It's, they're mm. just so different. You know what I mean? They're, people are going for different reasons altogether. I could see that because right? there's like, golf courses and stuff in Palm Springs and those areas. And yeah, like it's a different yeah. demographic. It's a different group. It's a different age yeah. range. Like it's all different. Right. I agree. Um, even though they're close to each other, it's different. I guess one hundred percent. Yeah. And they're both desert markets, but one's the high desert, one's the low desert. And there's differences there. Like I agree for yeah. sure. And so I want to get into the last three questions. Tie this up. Honestly, John, this has already been an awesome podcast and for anybody that wants John back, let me know because I think that I would love to dive into some of the amenity stuff that we talk about mm. that we haven't even talked touched on. Yeah. Like not even amenities, but like a listing stuff. Like, do reviews matter? Do you know, like that kind right. of stuff that me and you yeah. have really gone into depth where you're like, oh, this is the maximum the best amount of photos for a listing and all of that. Right. I think we've just been talking about the market, which has been super useful but and super helpful. But I think that would be a really cool segment we can touch on as well. Yeah, we should have um, made so. this a, a three-hour podcast. I was, I'm ready to go. <laughs> <Three> <laughs> People are like, please stop talking. <laughs> but I'm going to do two normal questions, and then there's going to be one special question just for you, John. So right, first question, what book do you recommend to people? And it can be any kind of book. It doesn't have to be real estate related. My favorite book is Atlas Shrugged, without a Never note. Never heard of it. What is that? Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. It's, a, it's an older book. Mm -hmm. Um, don't know when it came out. Um, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's amazing, dude. It's like strongest recommendation that you could ever have. I'm moving. So that's why my bookshelf is empty right now. Otherwise I'd grab it and show you, but it's, it's, a, it's it an about? amazing book. It's about, what is it about? It's a, so it's actually, it's about communism and democracy technically. 
But it's yeah, just your really... track record this whole freaking first you're being sexist, <laughs> now you're talking about communism. <laughs> That's right. Anyone who uh, follows me would enjoy it. But yeah, it, <laughs> it, it it's a story that is told um about how the people who run the country. So mm. in other words, like the people who provide the most value to the country are not valued at all. Mm. And then what would happen if we lost all those people? So if you were to think of like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and anyone at their level, it's almost a story told from their perspective. And what would happen if every single one of those people disappeared? And then what would the state of the country look like? And then would people, do people still give them shit for everything that they've done or do they appreciate them in a sense wow if you actually look up like a lot of these really large business owners that's their go-to favorite book which is why i decided to read in the first place and it's a very long book it took me a while to read through it but i've listened to the audiobook i think four times now and it's a 60 hour audiobook jesus yeah it's amazing you send me that link yeah, I'm yeah, gonna, I'll, I'm I'll gonna download it to you afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I, I've never heard of that on this show, so that's awesome. And then, so s- second thing is, what does what does the future look like for you, John? What are you mm-hmm. working on? Yeah. Great question. Working on quite a bit right now. It's what is it? November seventh, right now. We're gonna be. I'm releasing a webinar on November fifteenth, which is talking about a property evaluation service that I have, which is gonna be released to the public officially, Ooh. where we analyze people's properties, help them understand what the actual annual revenue is going to be before they buy it. So some people like to explain it. So you got to get an inspection, and you've got to get an appraisal, and you got to have John analyze the property to make sure mm-hmm. that you're going to be getting that right number. And then we also, in that analysis service, we per, we help you understand what amenities are going to drive revenue. So those are that's a service that's coming out very shortly. It might will most likely will already be out by the time anyone listens to this podcast. Mm-hmm. And then in early January, we're going to be releasing the software, which I've been working on for almost a year now straight and trying to get it out and trying to get it ready. We've done the beta release. We've worked through a lot of kinks and we are ready to launch for early January. And it's essentially going to be the ability for people to buy what I call a profit map, which is a report that allows you to be able to easily identify where's the most profitable place to purchase a property within any market and then how to analyze the data very easily in the way data should be analyzed. And then along with that is going to be coming my training, which is going to teach people how to go end to end, ensuring that they are getting a profitable property. And so those two products are going to be releasing in January. The other one's releasing, probably already released November 15th. So quite a few different things coming out. And obviously I still work full time with TechFester. So a lot of stuff, a lot of good things coming. Awesome. So last question, man, special for just for you, man. I thought of it when so considering I like to have like unlimited resources to see how people would spend those resources. And you have that with TechFester in a way, but I'm curious if you had knowing what you know about the future of Airbnb mm-hmm. and to be able to prepare best for what's to come through the mm-hmm. data that you've seen, what would you be spending money on when buying properties yourself and what, where would the properties be? What kind? I guess I want to know what your investment strategy would be for like properties that would last ten plus years, and what markets and what add-ons would you add to those properties, like amenity-wise? So great question. (laughs) First off, great question. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Are you familiar with Christy Wolf? Yeah, the Idaho potato 
the, yeah. the crystal lookout home, yeah. the, yeah. all those things. She's got the portfolio that if I had the unlimited cash and money, what I would be building, because essentially mm. they are the destination and it's not, a, it, it's the people are going for that, not for something else. And I would be trying to build Airbnbs that were the experience and mm. in locations that where the real estate was actually fairly cheap. So even if there was a good downturn or if there, sorry, if there was a downturn or anything along those lines, your cut, your carrying costs are so low yeah. that it's not that big of a deal. As an example, she bought a piece of land in Hawaii that was uh, $11,000. No, sorry. Land was $8,000. She only had to put up a thousand dollars and then pay it off monthly from there on out. And then she spent another, uh, I think it was $11,000 on getting the property built out. So it's a little treehouse in Hawaii in a less desirable area, but that's why the land was so cheap. But it was super remote, super like romantic, really well put together. And that property has been making her over $100,000 for the past 10 years straight. So that's, that's the dream. Those are, wow. That's like the, but the amount of time you need for a super remote type of property and to build it is a lot, right? So that would be the dream. That would be very ideal. It's just a very difficult thing to do with the way I've set up my life. So I love yeah. my life. So it is what it is. <laughs> But if you're asking me to dream in the sky, that, that would be it. But you can always hire people that, that would be part sure. and sure. take that on. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. So unique stays. That's huge. And then cool. Thank you so much, John, for everything. There's people that want to reach out to you and inquire about either the new stuff you're working on or just keep up to date on all the awesome videos you have about data and like how, for example, the last video, how design helped increase revenue by $11,000 and you have the data behind it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Where can people find you? So my strong recommendation is to look up my name, either John Bianchi or the Airbnb data guy uh, on YouTube and watch the videos that I have. So start going through what I have, find stuff that relates to your situation at the exact time and, and just get to understand me better. Right. And what I provide. Awesome. And the reason I say to do that is because I want to have an educated conversation with you when you actually decide to reach out. I've got three free courses on YouTube. Go to my playlist section, go through those videos. It's going to teach you everything I know. Then on my YouTube channel, if you go to the about section, you can find my email there. And that's if once you've gotten to that point, email me. If you want to have any additional questions, we can talk then, but just educate yourself first. I have most of my information for free, but go there and then we will eventually connect. So. Yeah. Awesome, man. And thanks for sharing your wisdom on this call, man, on this podcast. So I appreciate you and appreciate uh, well. have a good one, brother. Thanks, man. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Patrick Real Estate Show. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a follow and leave us a five-star review. Your support truly means a lot. And connect with Patrick in the show notes below. Until next time.